Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Beyond the Numbers, Key Insights from the Fidelity Advisor Movement Study, a conversation with Scott Gorham, Vice President of Competitive Intelligence at Fidelity Institutional and Lewis Diamond. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, feel free to share it widely. conversation around increased advisor movement might seem anecdotal and even obtuse at times, but it's anything but. The proof of such commentary comes from many of the industry's leading reports. One most commonly referenced is the Fidelity Advisor Movement Study. Conducted by Fidelity regularly since 2014, it's a cross-industry survey exploring advisor movement within and across industry channels with a focus on what advisors perceive as the benefits and barriers to making a move. Because of the pandemic, the 2020 advisor movement study was conducted in two phases. This allowed the intelligence team to isolate how the crisis impacted actual movement and whether it played into their mindset and consideration of changing firms or models. To get greater detail on the numbers and what advisors and the industry as a whole can glean from the study, Lewis Diamond sat down with Scott Gorham, Vice President of Competitive Intelligence at Fidelity Institutional. Scott has two decades of experience working in competitive intel with Fidelity, so he has a unique lens on what all the data means. Given that, I'm going to turn the mic over to Lewis and Scott. Thank you very much. Really excited to do the show and delighted to have Scott Gorham here. He gave a presentation at an event I was at. And I've shared with Scott that it was one of the more insightful and immediately practical um, studies or presentations I've heard. And I think it will be really applicable to our, our wider audience. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to join, Lewis. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about the industry trends we're seeing. Perfect. So let's, uh, let's get started. First, Scott, can you share a little bit about your background? How'd you get here today? Sure, I'd love to. I've been at Fidelity for about 23 years. At my heart, I'm kind of a researcher. Spent the first 10 years in finance doing such things as helping the retail side of our organization develop new products, do product pricing. I'm old enough to remember the days when there was commission associated with stock trades. So I was involved in some commission pricing initiatives. And then for the past 15 years, I've actually been focused outwardly, looking at the competition, industry trends, and the happenings in the marketplace to better inform our strategy and to help us help our clients. So can you tell us a little bit about the genesis and background of Fidelity's advisor movement study? It's definitely one of the more helpful white papers I've seen. I know yourself and some folks within your organization created this document. 
and I think it's available online. But can you just share with our audience a little bit about it and some takeaways? Happy to. So we came up with the initial idea uh, for the advisor movement study back in 2013 and then officially launched our first study in 2014 and have been fielding it regularly ever since. The talent landscape, as you know, has become increasingly competitive, so we wanted to help firms and recruiters better target advisors in transition and help them re to retain existing advisors. So as you mentioned, I mean, it's very much at a cross-industry level. We explore advisor movement within and across channels, focusing on advisors' perceived benefits and the barriers to them moving. And participants include advisors who manage client assets either individually or as teams and work primarily with individual investors. Additionally, advisor firm types include banks, independent broker-dealers, insurance companies, regional broker-dealers, RIAs, and the national firms, you know, otherwise known as wirehouses, with the findings weighted at the end of the day to reflect the proper industry composition. And then with the 2020 Fidelity Advisor Movement Study, when it was conducted, we actually did it in two phases. We initially went to market in February and got about 540 participants before the pandemic actually got fully underway in the March timeframe. So as the pandemic continued to spread, what we thought was, let's go back out to the market to get a feel for the impact the pandemic is having on movement. And fortunately, we were able to resample 90% of those participants so that we could get a good feel of what that impact is both before and as well after. Very interesting. And how does Fidelity as an organization use your report's findings? Or is it more just as a value add to your clients? It's a combination of things. So we have a lot of uses for it, primarily, as you mentioned, with clients. We want to help them understand what's happening in the marketplace and how they can compete for that talent that's moving. It also helps us understand where we can provide more support, education from a practice management standpoint. And then additionally, of course, it gives us a chance to have conversations like this, which we love. Perfect. And a topic that I'm really interested in is just understanding the dynamics of the different channels of the industry. Of course, Fidelity is synonymous with RA custody and broker-dealer clearing, amongst many other things. But your study, because of the way in which Fidelity interacts with the market, covered really the entire wealth management ecosystem. So I'm really curious, based upon your research, which channels of the industry are experiencing the most amount of recruitment success? And again, the channels, as you broke it down in your report, were the national wirehouses, the regional broker-dealers, independent broker-dealers or IBDs, independent RIAs, hybrid RIAs, meaning RIAs that also keep commissionable business, banks, and then insurance-based firms. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, so looking across the, the, the channels, as you've outlined, for years now, we've seen a lot of movement to the independent channels. So advisors want to own their client relationships we're finding and the service model associated therewith. So it's attractive for those reasons. A lot of advisors have the entrepreneurial spirit too. So the opportunity to run the firm as they see fit and eventually capitalize on the value of the enterprise that they and their team have grown throughout the years is a driver for many of them. And across the channels, the firm seeing the most success are paying for it actually. They're competing on with compensation, and as well, they're committing to spending recruiting money in order to woo uh, those most effective or most productive advisors. Yeah, Scott, I think, I think we're seeing that as well, more anecdotally. But is there any way you can drill into some more specifics? If you have the actual raw data, I think our listeners would love to hear about specifically how this trend is unshaping. 
Sure. So to get more specific, the top destinations we're seeing are the the RIA space, uh, the independent broker dealers. So of those that moved in our last reporting, 39% moved to the RIA channel, be it either with an independent broker dealer or in the hybrid uh, solution that you had just mentioned. Um, 25% were new to this independent space. So we are seeing that, that gravitational pull toward the independent marketplace. Got it. Okay. And then how about any channels that you saw as being the biggest losers, either as, as far as advisor headcount or assets or whatever metric you track on? Happy to provide some intel there, so to speak. What we have seen over the years is actually an insurance channel is a grower of advisors. So they have been the one most impacted by this attrition. Uh, they have historically been a feeder for the other channels because of the amount of training and development that they offer and the number of entry-level positions that they tend to create. Similarly, with the wirehouses, as you know, they have robust training programs, so they mint a lot of new advisors into the various channels. Those that have proven that they're not a good fit within the wirehouse channel will move to another channel after growing out of those training programs. That makes sense. Definitely. And any thought as to why this is? And do you expect this trend to continue? I do expect it to continue. And I think it's primarily being driven by the needs from those channels. They have a hard time or in some cases are unwilling to pay the compensation necessary to bring on new advisors. So they spin them up, so to speak, through these education programs and, and hire straight out of college applicants, thinking that they can train them to be an effective advisor. While their success rates have varied over the years, they still continue to see enough success that they continue with these programs. Definitely. It sounds like you're talking about, and I know you don't want to name names specifically, but anecdotally, something like a Merrill Lynch's strategy, where they've moved away from competitive recruiting like they used to, and now are focused on bringing in entry-level trainees into the Merrill Edge program or otherwise. Is that approximately what you're talking about? Yes, it is, actually. I think they're a good example because of that fact that they have almost a, a graduation program, meaning that they can start out at that, that smaller entry-level position within, say, a Merrill Edge and then grow on to become a full-fledged Merrill advisor or move into even the private banking organization. Understood. And just I'm curious, because the study looks at headcount, do you think tracking headcount is the right metric to look at when you're trying to gauge the growth or the competitiveness of one channel of the industry over the other? Or do you think something like AUM or production per advisor or revenue is a more meaningful figure? I definitely would agree with the latter, that AUM production is a much more meaningful figure. And in fact, we have been building uh, what we think is one of the best databases in the marketplace that we are utilizing those AUM figures to track this movement and to highlight these trends. Speaking of the information I shared at that client meeting that you uh, engaged with us on back in November, that came from our own internal build out of those numbers. So to your point, AUM productivity is far better, but I think that people have a very difficult time finding that information in a very kind of succinct and data-driven manner, so they default back to just headcount. Right. It's easier to look at. In 2020, as we're recording this, beginning of 2021, so can look now in retrospect, was an extremely, extremely active year for advisory recruitment. 
I would guess your data shows that, but I'm curious to hear what Fidelity's findings were. Do you agree that it was an active year for recruitment? And follow-up to that is, what do you think is driving all this movement? I do agree that 2020 was an active year overall. Uh, We've seen the trend towards independence for several years now, and I think we saw last year was a continuation of that. And as it relates to what is driving it, I think wirehouse attrition was down a bit this year compared to the prior three years. And our data shows that there were about 350 fewer moves in 2020 than 2019 in that wirehouse specific realm. However, to your point, movement across the board kind of overwhelmed that specific movement within the wires. We did see, interestingly, a 50% drop in movement compared to the overall average in April as the pandemic was raging. Uh, The wirehouse advisors stayed put, as did advisors across the industry, in order to help their clients and focus on those client needs. So they just pushed their move off is what we see in the data by a couple of months because things picked up pretty rapidly thereafter. Got it. So we're talking about the wirehouse advisor movement into the independent channel. Did you see any other channels of the industry, either the regional broker dealers insurance companies or banks pick up any market share? Or was most of it just wirehouses were kind of steady and maybe losing some, and then the independent space was the net benefactor? I would say the the independent space was the net benefactor, but the independent broker-dealer space was actually uh, seeing some attrition into the RIA-specific space, so that we saw people kind of shelving their licenses, some firms actually closing and then reforming as RIAs. So there is a trend toward those advisory assets or those advisory businesses, seemingly away from the commission orientation. That makes sense. And you would think as the industry becomes more fee-based or more advisory heavy, that that trend isn't going to stop. And just out of curiosity, when you see independent broker-dealer advisors migrate into the RIA space, Are they normally doing it in establishing their own registered investment advisor, or is it more moving on to their current broker dealers, maybe their their new RIA? So it it counts as a move to the RIA space, but they're still staying within the confines and support of a broker dealer. We actually are seeing a mix. So it's a very great point because you get into the specificity of what is happening. So we're seeing a mix of advisors to your, your latter point, tucking in with an independent RIA firm that's associated possibly with their IBD. So they're, you know, some of the larger IBDs have those affiliation models where they can hang their RIA either with a corporate RIA um, being held by the firm or with an associated OSJ, if you will, in in the case of some of the larger IBDs. But again, some are choosing to go out on their own and to form their own RIA and to, to stand up a business in order to, at some point in the future, capitalize on what they built through this possible sale of that uh, that entity. Yeah, very interesting. And I think we're seeing that as well. There, There is, I think, renewed interest in advisors joining established RIA firms, but still owning all of their equity and creating their own brand. And the benefit is to offload compliance to have a partner for operations and client billing and leverage some economies of scale. Of course, there are those advisors that are extremely entrepreneurial or who are much more kind of do-it-yourselfers, and they may benefit from having their own RIA. But with the plethora of options, and especially with some of the larger scale broker-dealers, I think recognizing the shift toward the RIA channel, um, I think we're going to continue to see 
that kind of tuck-in or bolt-on model uh, thrive as we move forward? Yeah, and just to put some numbers to that, uh, Lewis, our numbers show that uh, we supported nearly 200 advisor transitions in the custody segment last year. And of those 239 were newly launched RIAs. So it looks to be about 20% that are, are newly launching an RIA. That's a really interesting number. I think, I think we, we actually see it in a similar way, more so anecdotally. There's still, of course, a ton of benefit, either because the firm is large enough to have the scale to professionally manage itself and to kind of build its own platform. Or again, to some advisors, they want to pick every little aspect of the firm. They want to pick every part of the tech stack. They want to control compliance. But I think that's, that sounds about right um, based upon our, our business too. And just a quick pivot. The last year was quite active. I'm sure some of it had to do with the pandemic, a slowdown, but then an acceleration. What do you expect for 2021? I know you don't have the data yet, but um, just talking to some of your clients and reading the tea leaves, what's your expectation? Sure. So I think Q4 is going to be a great indicator as it relates to what's happening in 2021. We saw peak movement from the wirehouses at the end of Q3 and into Q4. And in terms of wirehouse attrition, there was a sharp drop in November. And again, I think that's probably that pandemic overlay as we started to see a spike in cases of COVID-19 across the country associated with the, you know, the holiday travel. So we did see a slight slowdown in November, but then uh, ramped up in the, the December timeframe within the wirehouse specific channel. So for 21, we think it's going to at least match 2020. We think that people are going to be unleashed um, once the vaccine is fully distributed. And additionally, I think what has happened is this work in from home environment has provided them the freedom to explore other channels and as well as given them the belief that they can do so, operate on their own, that is, without being part of a much larger organization. So that work from home environment had uh, multiple benefits. Certainly. We see it the same way in that advisors have much more time to work on the business instead of in it and can certainly conduct a due diligence process much more securely and confidentially because they have the benefit of working from home. But um, of course, the pandemic, it also creates a lot of uncertainty and angst for advisors. And every firm has had to pivot their recruitment process. Um, No longer could the firm rely upon home office visits or a series of in-person meetings. It's been converted to almost a fully digital or virtual process. So I know some of your research has been on the impact of COVID on the advisor recruitment journey and also overall advisor transitions. Can you share a little bit about your main insights from this report? Happy to. So compensation has continued to drive decisions is what we're seeing from a a key output from that research. The pandemic didn't impact that at all. But when you look at factors outside of compensation, we saw a shift in priorities. So things like technology uh, focus increased in importance and culture really fell below the top 10 considerations. Not to say that it's not important, But with most people still working from home, it it just wasn't as top of mind. Some interesting findings to share. 80% of advisors noted that greater financial incentives would be needed for them to make that switch. And nearly one third of advisors said that higher compensation would motivate them to switch. And then 65% of advisors believe firms that have been been more digitally innovative during the pandemic have become more attractive destinations for advisors. So that ease of doing business is something that advisors are focused on as part of their movement or incentive. 
Very interesting. And your RIA and broker-dealer clients, have you seen a lot of these firms, do you think, permanently change their recruitment process? Or is it going to be a temporary adaptation and then it'll go back to business as usual once the world opens back up? I think it's going to be somewhere down the middle, to be honest with you, because I think that the work environment is going to shift post-pandemic. I think that uh, work from home will be a much bigger component of people's work weeks. And therefore, I think the, the recruiters and their, their approach will be a mix of this new paradigm in the work from home environment associated with the old paradigm as people return to the workplace. Yeah, I completely agree. Definitely some sustainable improvements and maybe not needing to hop on the plane multiple times to go visit with a potential recruit. And on the advisor side, being able to more efficiently tackle due diligence process, perhaps more from the comfort of of one's home. And I know in the same report, you talk about the five stages of the advisor movement journey. Would you be able to share what those five stages were and how that might impact advisors? Sure, happy to. Let me give you an outline for them. So the first stage was what is known as the information gathering stage. At this stage, the advisors are are really surveying the marketplace and trying to get a full scope of their opportunities. From there, they move into the consideration phase. And this is when they move from simply gathering information to actively considering the move. So really thinking about what's right for them and their families and what the pros and cons are to making a move. And then there's step three or stage three, if you will, and that's making the move itself. And at this stage, they've decided to make the move. So this is a really about the transition planning and the actual transition. And then from there on to four, which we see as the benefits of the move. So once they've made the transition, this is where they start to experience the benefits of that transition that are accruing to them and their business. And then lastly, it's a reflection period. So what do they think about their decision to move? Would they move again? Did the anticipated challenges end up being challenges, in fact? So it's more of a retrospective view of of the overall process. Yeah, that's interesting. And on steps four and five, so step four was more about the benefits or why they did it in the first place. And step five was the retrospect or kind of Monday morning quarterbacking. Um, So on those two points, what did your data show motivated advisors to move in the first place? And then the corollary to that is what made them stay? So what we saw from folks was the benefits of the move they were looking for. They wanted to feel more confident about their future success. They wanted to have greater job satisfaction. Additionally, they wanted to have more control over their future. And the benefits of the move, our numbers showed that some, once they made the move, some 96% are happy with the decision that they made. And looking back on the reflections part of the the stages from a concerns versus reality standpoint. So when they were thinking about the move, they were concerned initially about the amount of time I would need to spend on the transition instead of managing my practice. So 64% were concerned. Looking back retrospectively, only 30% said that that was actually the reality. Additionally, 56% of respondents said that they were afraid of the unknown. However, retrospectively, only 12% thought that that fear actually came to fruition. And then at transition time, 87% of advisors had not taken an extended time off. So unfortunately, part of that retrospective review is what would I do differently? And it it is quite time consuming and becomes all consuming that transition. So I think that they are reflective and looking back and thinking, okay, I'm biting off a lot here. Let me be sure that I'm ready for this. And as well, taking care of myself at the same time as I'm taking care of my clients. 
Yeah, I think we see the same thing. And to an earlier point we were talking about around advisors joining established platforms versus only about 20% of advisors launching their own RIA, I suspect that some of the delta then between the expectation that advisors were going to have to spend much more time working on their business instead of working with clients versus the reality once they transitioned was probably due to that, that there was more stuff they were able to offload. And I'm sure, I know we see it, it's of course a big adjustment in the beginning, but then you kind of get your sea legs and within a couple of months um, becomes much more easier to understand how to do certain things and the benefits start to pick up. Yeah, I agree fully. Again, just hearkening back to those advisors that actually made a move, they cited a desire to operate autonomously and providing conflict-free advice to their clients as that major motivator, and then improved earning potential, as mentioned, better technology, strong firm culture. Those would be the key drivers for that ultimate decision. Yeah. And one of the big findings was the financial motivation behind a move. So we always say that the math has to make sense and advisors are serving multiple constituencies. Of course, they're trying to take care of their families. They're trying to take care of their teams financially. And at the end of the day, they're, they're business people. But if an advisor moves just because of the financials, that typically doesn't go over well with clients. So I would like to think at least that while financials might be a nice benefit of moving into the RIA or independent broker-dealer space, there has to be many other motivators for why they want to go independent in the first place and also uh, pull factors or reasons why they're motivated enough to depart the comforts of their of their current firm. Do you agree? I do agree wholeheartedly. We see that through our studies, that an advisor that's making a move that is either solely or predominantly based upon compensation or monies that they receive in making the move, they end up regretting it far more than those that have done a more holistic approach to reviewing that move process and looked at things like culture and technology and getting you know family input into relocations and the like. Yeah, absolutely. And in your report, were there any insights into asset portability during the transition? That's a really popular question. And if advisors had a crystal ball and they knew that X percentage of their clients would move, I would think a lot of advisors would probably move sooner or decide to move in the first place. But it's usually the fear of the unknown that keeps advisors in their seat. I'm happy to say that our research shows that they need not worry here. That portability is very good. It's actually gotten better despite some of the steps that some of the wirehouses have taken in recent years to try and prevent it. So we see about 90% of assets transition with the advisor. Some of what drops off actually is by design. So since many advisors use this as an opportunity to sharpen their segmentation and part ways with clients who aren't a best fit for them. Uh, And also of note from our study, advisors who moved to a new firm, reported 30% asset growth post that switch. Wow. So let me recap that. 90% asset portability post-transition is, is pretty incredible, and not to mention the potential growth. And I think I would agree with you. We see the concept a lot, shrink to grow. So leaving behind either unproductive assets or clients that don't fit the new identity of the firm So in actuality, it's probably even less than a 10% drop-off of of regrettable attrition from an advisor's book. That is pretty incredible. Of course, there's exceptions at at both ends of the tail. I'm sure you see clients that transition 115, 120% of their book, and then other ones that are much less. But do you have any comments then on 
what you think make, makes for um, a more effective transition. So if an advisor is listening to this and they're planning, they're thinking about how can I have a transition where I move 90% more of my book? Do you have any advice or any data or insights that they can kind of take in to try to prepare for a move? Yeah, happy to provide some there. So what we have found is um, communicate, communicate, communicate. Uh, that's where they should be focused is it's all about the rationalization for the move. Our studies have shown it's about communicating why you are making this transition and why it's in the best interest of those clients. And if you can bring them on board and um, they agree that you're, you're making this move in their best interest and the best interest of your firm, they're going to follow because they've grown with you and you've kind of grown them, so to speak, through their financial planning process. So they're low to leave the relationship, but would rather come with you. You just need to communicate to them what is the justification of that movement. Yeah. So the, the planning is never going to be wasted time. While there's a lot to bite off in a transition, the more time you can plan, but also plan under the guidance of an attorney and not overly communicate with clients is critical because that has the possibility to really, really diminished asset portability would be trying to be a little bit overzealous and over communicating a move to clients uh, before you're able to. Yeah, I, you couldn't be more correct there, Lewis. The, the communication has to be at the right time because of all of the concerns that can come up during that transition time. Absolutely. And Fidelity serves clients across the independent broker-dealer world as a clearing firm, independent RIAs as a leading RIA custodian, and the hybrid RIA channel as well, where advisors have either their own RIA for their advisory assets or join a corporate RIA, and then they still hang their broker-dealer license somewhere, either through a Fidelity Clearing broker-dealer or perhaps through a, just a different unaffiliated broker-dealer. So in looking at these three main channels where Fidelity plays, what's your feelings on the growth of these channels going forward? I think as much as we've said, I mean, it's a very good question because we think that the independent channels, RIA custody is going to be a focus area. You need only look at what's happening in the, the M&A space, which we track very closely on a monthly basis. There is a great deal of transaction activity and M&A activity. In fact, we just put together our December numbers this morning and they came in uh, very robust. We're still kind of uh, sifting through them, but we think 2020 is going to be far and away the record year that we've seen since we've been collecting this data going back to 2016 in RIA M&A activity. From an advisor transition standpoint in 2020, we supported nearly 200 advisor transitions in the custody segment last year. And of that, as previously mentioned, 39 of those were those newly formed RIAs. And what's interesting is that we never really saw a drop off in activity. That, you know, it largely speaks to how well planned that these events were. But what we saw as much movement in the early days was uh, of the pandemic as we did in the pre-pandemic period. And then there was a bit of an acceleration through the summer and an uptick into the start of Q4. We were really seeing early in the pandemic that some advisors were planning to make a move, but delayed it by a month or two. But overall, the pandemic really didn't slow movement much at all. One really interesting example was the Elk River Wealth Management Team, 
If you had a chance to catch Jay Hummel on David Cantor's Coffee Break with Cantor Series, Jay talked a bit about how the team was catching the last flights out before things closed down in that March time period. And even with the sudden change to remote, things move forward, but full steam ahead. And the firm officially launched on March 23rd of all days and of all weeks, if you will, just a week before the world was shutting down around them. Yeah, that's talk about interesting timing. And what about any risk factors? A lot of unknowns in the world, but any risks your team is tracking as things that might take the wind out of the sails of the either the movement independence or to kind of put a put a governor on some of the growth you're seeing across your lines of business? Sure. So we're seeing continued growth across the business, as we've been discussing, and think the momentum will continue. One of the things we often say is we're in a bull market for advice. We were, we were in that bull market before the pandemic, and in many ways, the pandemic has only emphasized the need for a strong financial plan, as I'm sure you've seen. In terms of what could take the wind out of the sails, I think we're not likely to see a significant shift in terms of activity. But obviously, advisors are always keeping an eye on regulatory and legislative changes that could impact their business. For example, due to Reg BI, small broker dealers may more likely to drop that BD resignation, as I was speaking of earlier, due to the regulatory cost burden and join an independent BD as, say, a hybrid RIA. Now, while I can't speculate what might happen, obviously, with a, a new administration play, in place in Washington, we can expect that some updates uh, will be coming in the year ahead. Yeah, I completely agree. Again, the wishing we had that crystal ball, but all we can do is look at the data. And then just as a quick recap, we hit a little bit on some predictions about 2021, but anything else you would like to share about the year ahead, either things Fidelity is excited for, or just looking at some of the early data or some of the trends or the inputs coming in from Q4, anything else to share about 2021? Yeah, we're very excited for 2021 and the activity that we're already starting to see. It looks really promising. I think we're on par to have another year like 2020, if not a bit more active. Given the market conditions, a lot of firms are in a position to be competitive on compensation, and that's where a lot of advisors are focused when making the decision to move, as the research has shown. And also keeping in mind that there's a subset of advisor movement that is tied to M&A, as I was discussing, as long as we continue to see a robust M&A market, we'll continue to see related advisor movement remain high as well as a number of those advisors will either not want to go with that firm in that movement or, or use that opportunity of the M&A activity to, to make a leap that they had always already been considering. Yeah, very interesting. I would agree. And I would assume there's probably going to be more consolidation with the independent broker dealers. And anytime there's a M&A transaction, as you alluded to, it could serve as a catalyst for more advisor movement. So I think we're kind of reading it in a similar way. We don't look at the data as much as you. We don't have it at our fingertips. But anecdotally, we're really bullish on the year ahead. And seemingly, as advisors um, become unhappy with their current situation, there's just more and more innovative and exciting options for advisors, not to mention all of the support that's available for advisors to launch their own independent business. And when there's more options, the possibility that advisors will find their perfect option or near perfect option magnifies. And that is very good for continued growth of the industry as far as advisor movement. So I wanted to uh, thank you, Scott, for sharing your insights. And if folks are interested in grabbing a copy of this report and some of your other um, 
work. Would you be able to share um, where to find that information? Or perhaps we can just put it on the, the page to this episode? Yeah, most definitely, Lewis. We'll get you those links. And uh, it's definitely all available. Perfect. We will make sure to include that. Thanks again, Scott. I'm happy to do it, Lewis. Thank you so much for having me along. Even with the world turned upside down, advisor movement was strong in 2020 as demonstrated by the study. But it's statistics like 90% asset portability and 30% growth for RIAs that are most compelling. As Lewis noted, you can download a copy of the study on this episode's page on our website to review the data further. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached by Excel at 973-476-8578 or by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, I'd be incredibly grateful if you gave us a star rating. That lets other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.